Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. We've just been perusing your emails, which brings us much joy of a Tuesday morn. We had an email from Lydia who found us via Call Your Girlfriend, and she wanted to mention that Louise Renison died this week, which was very sad news. A lot of people in our office were really sad to hear that, weren't they? Yeah, Louise Renison, author of such books as Anger Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, a yeah. teen classic, which I absolutely loved. She says she wrote the Georgia Nicholson series, and it was an absolute main stay among my friends and I at school. I've never really ever read an author who so accurately portrayed the hysterical and surreal humour of being a teenage girl. So I think that's a sentiment that many of her readers would echo. I actually didn't ever really read Louise Renison. Which oh no, I, you definitely should. I know, and like lots of my friends did. Uh, and I don't know if it was because I was one of those teenage girls who was a bit like, I'm not like the other girls, I'm not mm. girly. And the, her covers were really girly. Yeah, which is not really an accurate representation of what the book's like. Since you love Diary of a Teenage Girl, mm. you will definitely love this. It's in roughly the similar space. Okay, so I'm, you know, to honour her, I'll definitely be picking one up. So thanks so much, Lydia. We've also had an email from Jonathan, who writes in mainly to talk about our award special, which is a, a few episodes ago now, actually. He says how much he likes the term biopec, so thanks very much for that. Also a sentence that just warms my heart, which is, Your podcast has supplanted In Our Time as my go-to <laughs> entertainment on the Eurostar. <laughs> There's nothing I don't love about that sentence. Oh my god, there's so many levels to that. I mean, I love the In Our Time podcast, which if you don't know, In Our Time is a Radio 4 programme where really clever people talk about clever stuff, so it's nice to know that we're, you know, in the same ballpark as them. Yeah, I really do not see us on that level. No, definitely not. But But also, on the Eurostar. I know. So glamorous. But anyway, the main focus of this email is, he says, I was disappointed that you didn't discuss the best foreign language film category at the Oscars. Uh, Son of Saul, which one, is actually one of the best films he's ever seen. Uh, To be fair, not sure films about concentration camps count as popular culture but you should check it out and then he picks up on something we've mentioned in previous podcasts which is the film girlhood and recommends a previous film by the same director who is celine siyama which is called tomboy which he says is possibly the best film i've seen that deals with transgender issues and more widely with puberty i think i mean we both really really love girlhood so we'll definitely be checking that out yeah i've read lots of criticisms of girlhood from um black women who watched it who said they didn't really feel like it was actually representative Mm. of their experience and obviously i don't know 
because it's not mine. But I did really enjoy it, so I'd be interested to at least see Tomboy. Yeah, so thanks very much, Jonathan. I hope you're hearing this on un- the Eurostar. Under Does that mean the- we're on the Eurostar? I, yeah, definitely. Basically, we're that kind of glamour life. Yeah. Eurostar life. We've had another email as well from Olivia B, who is a newcomer to the podcast, and she was listening to someone's from a while back, though it is a regular topic of ours, this, about graphic novels, specifically kind of teen memoir graphic novels, mm. something we return to again and again. And she wanted to recommend Giant Days, a British fictional comic book series by John Allison, who did the webcomic Scary Go Round and Bad Machinery. Which I, I love Bad Machinery. Oh, I don't know them. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, I need to check these out. Apparently, it's a really nice comic about three female friends who are just starting university and hits the sweet point of funny, silly humour and quite honest representations of that really specific point in your life. So I'll definitely keep my eyes peeled for giant days. Yeah, so I think next teen comic episode, which must be coming up soon, we haven't done one yeah, for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll definitely have a look at that. So thank you very much. And if you've got something you'd like to recommend us or a thought you'd like to share, or how about an exciting location that you listen to the podcast in? Yeah. Can you do better than the Eurostar? Yeah. <laughs> um, let us know on seriouslypod at gmail.com. The first thing we're going to talk about this week is a new album. The 1975 are a pop alt-rock band from Manchester, and their first self-titled album came out in 2013, and they've just released a second one called I Like It When You Sleep, For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware Of It. <laughs> It debuted at number one in both the US and the UK, and it's been said that they have a fan base, quote, rivaled only by One Direction. Which, can I say, as a One Direction Mm. fan follower, all my One Direction fans that I follow across different social media platforms have gone into 1975 mode there's a big that's crossover interesting. so so it, it is actually partly the one direction fan base that is their fan yeah base. i don't know how far that is anecdotal and how far that's mm. actually true but a lot of the the one direction fans i follow are also big 1975 stands so i feel like this album has just been everywhere mm. massive posters with their terrible album title on it mm. i have listened to it a fair few times but i really struggle to describe what genre it is yeah i think one thing about this album is it's really like a lot of great albums that's not me necessarily saying this is a great album but like a lot of great albums it's pilfering from like a million different genres at once so so much the whole time i was listening i was like that's Sigur Ross. that's mm. definitely bruno mars that's you know all the way yeah, through. yeah it's really funny one thing that i like about it is that it's really like oh we're gonna go from like indie rock to like electro pop to like soul and I like that they're just being like, ma, 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 ma. mine, 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 mine. It's a Magpies album, yeah. right? That, yeah. So you really get this in the way the album starts, actually, because it's got that kind of short intro track that mm-hmm. lots of classic albums have. I'm thinking particularly of Suede's Dogman Star does this in a really cool way. But so you get like a kind of big, whooshy, acoustic sound, and you think this is the beginning of something really epic and kind of Icelandic and mm. cool. And then it goes... Which is just not what you expect at all. That's like the intro to Uptown Funk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is really funny. And they they just kind of play with your expectations a little bit throughout this album. Like, there's a song called Please Be Naked. And I was like, oh, that's going to be like a kind of party, upbeat kind of song. Mm. And it's just not at all. It's a bit like when the Arctic Monkeys came out with their fifth album and there was a song on it called Number One Party Answer. (laughs) And all the fans were like, oh no, what have you done? And then it was like a soothing ballad and it, was, like, it was quite oh, sad that song yeah yeah, yeah. so they they definitely and i think quite consciously like to play with people 
I'm going to give you one of many quotes from Matt Healy that I've written down on my phone. Yeah, I I saw um, a few comments saying that Matt Healy, the sort of lead singer, is channeling Morrissey as hard as he possibly can. And I think that's kind of accurate <laughs> in the sense, both in the sense that his lyrics are quite sort of Morrissey, Smithsy, but also he just likes to say mad things to the press. Yeah, but he said something that kind of suddenly I was like, oh yeah, maybe that is what you're doing this whole time. And for anyone who hasn't seen Matt Healy, he's this kind of like indie boy cardboard cutout. He's skinny, he's got curly dark hair, he's white, he looks maybe a little bit ill, he's got great cheekbones and he's got a silly haircut and he wears things like leather trousers and he says stupid stuff all the time. Like, for example, this is what Peter Robinson says, Matty speaks with utter conviction of thoughts that seem to be a work in progress, peppering his sentences with phrases like postmodern, meta, and post-ironic, which you're like, oh, geez, give me a break. But then every interviewer who's interviewed him has also said, guys, the weird thing is he's actually really fucking charismatic and I really liked him and I really enjoyed talking to him. So I'm kind of conflicted. He said in an interview with The Independent, if my tongue's in my cheek, maybe I won't fall over it. Mm. And I feel like that's... So, for example, by, like, calling a song please be naked or like there's a line in one of the songs i can't remember which one where he says i'll so i'll quote on the road like a twat and the 1975 band name is from a jack kerouac book of poetry where he was dating at june 1 the 1975 yeah so he's like constantly taking the piss out of himself but i'm also a bit like you're still kind of annoying it's (laughs) it's how i feel whenever someone is doing something irritating in an ironic sense it's like mm. you're it's still, still irritating you're still doing the irritating yeah. thing though aren't you exactly he said in an interview with the fader with peter robinson of pop justice fame that he's not really arrogant and he's not really like a bit of an idiot it's all just like an act and you're a bit like well on the one hand if you were just a person down the street you'd be like well you're still a complete idiot but on another hand you kind of want your pop stars to be pop stars so oh, i'm definitely. kind of conflicted about him about... i am generally in favor of pop stars being pop stars that's why we have pop stars for them to be ridiculous and overblown and yeah they have to the have things. a performance personality yeah. and uh, i'm at home having a cup of tea personality one of my favorite descriptions of matt healy's general attitude it was in the drowned in sound review by sean adams where he says that their peacock of a singer says things in interviews that are so ridiculous that it seems the only media training he's ever had involved meeting Noel Gallagher in a lift (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's so true I think a bit of that does bleed over into the music as well as definitely the interviews so not just so as you say there's the kind of self-ironizing lyrics there's also something kind of Brit poppy at times about his vocal like he he drops his h's and he does glottals where he definitely doesn't in his speaking voice in a way that reminds me of Jarvis Cocker yeah and it's that kind of blur arctic monkeys thing of like having slightly long overblown rhymes like Mm. empathetic rhetoric yeah that kind of thing reciprocation conversation there's something very knowing about it it's it's very 90s what was your what was your least favorite song do you think i don't know because my least favorite ones sort of blur into one a bit i have a slight problem with the 1975 in the way they talk about women which i think comes across in the title of the album i like it when you sleep for you are so beautiful yet so unaware of it which could also be i like it when you sleep for you are so beautiful and so unable to voice any opinions <laughs> so i must speak for you yeah exactly yeah. our colleague anoush just as we were coming to record this was trying to remember what the title was and she ended up saying isn't it something like you say it best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> it's basically that. In their last album, the 1975 had a big single called Girls, and the lyrics in that really pissed me off because it was like, 
talking about how 17 year olds are just girls they're not right for you one of the lines was like a minute ago i was tearing off your blouse now you're living in my house what happened to just messing around you're just a girl and uh-huh. like oh, it drives me crazy and there's a song on this one called she's american which is similarly kind of like it's exactly disparaging what i was gonna say yeah. i really didn't like she's american very disparaging about the the woman he's talking about and you're a bit like mm, are you, are you, is she really that stupid or are you a patronizing twat yeah so this these lyrics particularly really got to me if she likes it because we just don't eat and we're so intelligent she's american if she says i've got to fix my teeth then she's so american yeah exactly and it's like you're just using American as a euphemism for stupid, yeah, and that's not okay. it's really bad. I'm not really here for their kind of ballady songs. No, upbeat is best when it comes to them. Yeah, so my favourite tracks on this album were like The Sound and Ugh. Yeah, that's a great one. Ugh, I really liked, which is just U-G-H exclamation mark. Basically, the thing I like about the 1975 is when they're going full pop, mm. and I think when they're doing their catchy, melodic, pretty structured songs, I'm really here for it, and I like that they're... I'm in a conflicted place with them as a band because both sonically and in their like vibe and persona, I like it when they're not trying to be cool and they're just doing pop, but they seem to be working on this weird idea that they can do both. They can both not try to be cool and try really, really hard to be cool. So for example, that Matt Healy quote where he put down One Direction for like not Mm. being true artists. But at the same time, he often says in interviews that like indie bands like the Arctic Monkeys who wouldn't go near any poppy sounds are trying too hard to be cool and then it makes their music worse. Despite myself, there's a, there were a lot of tracks I really liked on this record. There are a lot of things I kind of find slightly intriguing about Matt Healy, despite the fact that I'm also a bit like, if I knew you in real life, I probably wouldn't like you. Yeah, and also given what we said about how multifaceted the influence is on it, I'm sort of interested to see what they do next. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think if they can concentrate on just like making interesting sounds, then they'll mm. probably go quite far. Yeah, Sean Adams in that that review said that when they're at their best, they are Duran Duran meets Panic at the Disco. Yeah. Oh my God, that's Which so is true. So perfect. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, give one. it a try. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. going to talk about this week is American Crime Story The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which is a 10-part dramatisation of the American football player's infamous murder trial in 1994, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. as Simpson and John Travolta and David Schwimmer as defence lawyers Robert Shapiro and Robert Kardashian. It follows both the prosecution and defence teams as they prepare and present their evidence in one of the biggest murder cases in history, really. Definitely in terms of media coverage and celebrity. Yeah, because this programme starts following the moments in immediately after Nicole, OJ's wife, is found murdered. And there's so much about this case that I didn't realise because I wasn't paying attention as a two-year-old at the time. Yeah, same. I think I always knew the name OJ Simpson as something infamous. Yeah, and the If I Did It book. Yes. I knew about that. And that's really as far as I got. I mean, I didn't even know whether he was convicted the first time or any of that. No, me neither. And I guess I knew vaguely of the Kardashian connection, but yeah. again, didn't really properly know the nature of that until much later yeah what have you got got two victims in brentwood brentwood nobody gets killed in brentwood all right you're gonna say this case is all about race yes because it is do you think he did it she was terrified of him i'm not a public personality i don't know how to do this is my friend. I don't turn my back on people. You're turning your back on Nicole. Who the hell signs a suicide note with a happy face? I ain't trying to be respectful. I'm trying to win. You want to make this a black thing? Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. So in, I think it's the first episode or the second episode, they follow one of the first things that brought this case so much intense media scrutiny as if it wasn't going to in the first place, was the fact that OJ, who's obviously a massive American football star, instead of going quietly to the police, gets in his car with his mate and they like drive... Madly down they're, they're the trying highway, to, They're yeah. trying, supposedly trying to get to his mum's house, but they seem to be driving in no particular direction and they don't fully seem to be trying to make a getaway either. And police the LAPD have to shut down the entire freeway and every channel is following this car chase for like 12 hours or something and you think oh my god what a ridiculous huge scale media event that would be they interrupted one of the biggest I think it was American football maybe it was just sporting events that was on TV at the time to show the car chase because it was that big so the show's obviously really dramatic and after I'd watched the first episode I was like well this is maybe some good TV but meh 
And then I went and read the Wikipedia page for the case. And I was like, okay, no, he really did do that. He really did. Rather than take the sensible option advised by his lawyers and surrender himself in full cooperation to the police, no, he did just get in a car and drive down the highway. Yeah, and there's like one more unbelievable thing after the next Mm. with this story. One minute he's running away by trying to drive down the highway. The next minute they've released the 911 call of Nicole who called 911 because OJ was beating her up so violently. And then you get time making OJ look more black to put him on the cover to imply that he's more dangerous because he's more black like yeah. all these things one thing after another you're like oh my god that didn't happen that didn't happen that didn't happen and it just gets crazier and crazier and when you've got a story this mad it's very difficult to do it in a way that still seems serious and I think they've pulled that off for me so far anyway yeah I think they have too there are so many things counting against them on that front because mm-hmm. yeah there's the inherently true ridiculousness of the actual story there's the fact that it's a very well known story so for a crime show to start out with a premise where most of the audience already know how it ends yeah. is difficult yeah. then on top of that they've got loads of celebrity actors in it playing yeah. real well-known people yeah, which yeah, yeah. is just dodgy celebs playing celebs celebs playing celebs is a weird so like David, David Trimmer playing Rob Kardashian senior oh yeah not, sorry sorry Rob Kardashian not senior not black China not, not black China Rob Kardashian <laughs> in the first episode I kind of struggled because I was like why is Ross talking to OJ yeah I think he has now progressed for me into being an actual character he's an, I think he's giving an excellent performance and so far he's weirdly the moral heart of the show yeah I wasn't expecting that I think you know watching it that you feel that he's very deeply misguided so basically David Schwimmer plays Robert Kardashian who is OJ Simpson's close personal friend and also part of his defence team Mm. and he's kind of part of his defence team almost incidentally because he's a lawyer who's also just really good personal friends with OJ and he ends up on it purely because he's got so much belief and faith in his friend and although you think he's wrong for that you definitely feel like Robert Kardashian's the moral sort of centre of it because he's just constantly doing this kind of like hurt puppy dog mm. face the entire time. And he's, he's really good at it. He's set against John Travolta as Robert Shapiro. Who's amazing. Who is incredible. I mean, all the things that I've read about John Travolta in the last few years and how his life is really kind of crumbling. Crumbling. <laughs> and then he turns out a performance like this. It's uh, you really know, good. It's really good. So he plays Robert Shapiro, who's OJ's lead lawyer. Yeah, and has been for some time. Has been for some time and and you get the sense as well, he's one of those lawyers who specialises in celebrity cases. Yeah, and, you know. and works towards settlements, yes. doesn't go to court. Minimising damage, minimising damaging coverage, which obviously he totally fails in this regard because yeah. it blows up into the biggest story ever. Yeah. But yeah, so he, he's constantly ready to compromise and wheel and deal. Yeah, and, and he's utterly incompetent. And John Travolta plays that incompetence with dignity in a yeah. really amazing way. It's so clever, the fact that he makes does this performance where you know that Robert Shapiro just can't see his own incompetence for the life of him and actually just thinks he's like a really serious guy. Brilliant, absolutely great acting. After John Travolta, my next favourite performance in it is Sarah Paulson as Marcia Clark, who is one of the prosecutors, because she's just like the epitome of the 90s woman. Yeah, she's got an amazing perm. She walks around in these suits all day with a fag hanging out of her mouth. There's lots of shots of her sort of hurriedly looking after her children which I'm a bit like a bit unnecessary we haven't seen yeah. any of the men lawyers looking after their kids yeah 
her, but I, I actually quite like that angle in this because I feel like for the time when all of this was happening, that is how women were perceived. Yeah. You know, she is a woman, quote, trying to have it all. Yeah. And that is what the men think of her. So I think it's important that the viewer sees that too. At the beginning, she is vaguely heard of OJ Simpson. She doesn't know who he is because she doesn't follow mm. football. And then she gets so angry and so rightly so when like the first like police interview with OJ comes back and she listens to the tape. She's like, why aren't they asking him any of the questions like, did you murder her? Yeah. Why are they just being so deferential and respectful? This is all bound up with the discussion of celebrity in the case, that these police guys are being so deferential because OJ's like their hero. He's like their sporting hero. Right. I think, A, the one thing it does very well is demonstrates how emotionally invested everyone on all sides are in this case. So yeah. Marcy is a really good example. She's horrified by what she sees has been done to Nicole. Yeah. And so are lots of other women in this show. Chris Jenner is one of them. But also uh, how there are all these different sort of structural issues feeding into it all the time. Mm. So you obviously have the celebrity angle. Are the police not doing their jobs well enough because they're starstruck? The media interfering constantly because of that celebrity angle. So all their good witnesses are going to the press and giving away their statements before the trial, which is damaging on both sides. But you also get the racial element. Yeah. And it's a huge part of the defence's case is that one of the main officers involved in this, this guy called Mark Furman, is basically a known racist <laughs> and had to have time off work before because of it. Then we have things like time darkening his face. We have a whole group of dedicated black lawyers who have been pointing out all these racial injustices on behalf of the LAPD. And that becomes very resonant with our current times, these these threads in the show. So it suddenly becomes a lot more complicated than being like, well, he obviously did it. When the police first come to an idea that OJ might be a suspect, they sort of take him around the other side of his house away from the cameras. And then the policeman just handcuffs him, even though they're not really arresting him. A a rogue cameraman manages to film this, no offence. And this becomes the kind of defining image of the beginning of the case is like OJ in handcuffs and there's so much discussion of whether if he wasn't black obviously he wouldn't have handcuffed him it's yeah it's yeah. also coded and horrible and there's a, another moment where they finally get him after the car chase and yeah. he's holding a picture of his children I think in a frame and he's got it underneath his arm as he leaves the car and someone shouts he's got a gun mm. and you're like oh my god the confusion of the picture frame and the gun is such a thing because you're seeing a black man and that is something that you code as violent and you associate with the whole of a gun but at the same time he's also getting a lot of preferential treatment because of his high status one character says at one point you know oj is black but he comes from a world that is white male rich privileged yeah that is he's also very much associated with that he shares in some of that but not all of it yeah he can never obviously share in all of it because of his skin color it becomes so much more complicated than like oh my god there was so much evidence why didn't they get him and i'm finding it so interesting and i know that part of that will be the lure of celebrity that you know I and many others are very drawn to but I think part of it is this is a historic case for for many reasons it's a historic case and this is a well-made drama of it yeah I think it yeah it's very compelling it could have been terrible it could have been like a sort of American TV movie Mm. with lots of like turning to the camera and sort of fake gasps and stuff Mm. but it's not it's very reluctant to give easy answers and it's constantly laying out all these nuances that we've just been talking about and then saying "Eh, that's how it was yeah what do you want to do exactly it doesn't tell you 
this was the right thing or this yeah. was the wrong thing at any point. I think sometimes it can be cheesy mm. and the cheesy moments are almost always Robert Kardashian moments. Yes. And they're Car- the Kardashians in general. Have you seen the opening scene of episode three, I think no, it is? No, yeah. I haven't yet. Well, it doesn't spoil anything for you, but it's Father's Day. Robert Kardashian is taking all his kids out to dinner, Father's Day or to lunch. They go to their favourite lunch place and there's no space because it's Father's Day. But, oh my God, you're Robert Kardashian on the OJ case. Oh my God, we have a table for you. Like, come right here. You should come anytime. <laughs> the kids, enamoured by this experience, of course, because everyone knows the Kardashians are fame-hungry whores. Little Kim Kardashian, who's like about seven, they're, they're all talking about it at the table. And then Robert Kardashian does this cheeseball speech about like, guys, you're a Kardashian. And being a Kardashian means that friends and loyalty and kindness <laughs> is more important than fame, okay? We are Kardashians. And in this family, being a good person and a loyal friend is more important than than being famous. Fame is fleeting. It's hollow. It means nothing at all without a virtuous heart. You remember that, and then they all, like, go back to their food like they're not listening. Mm. And the joke is like, oh, the Kardashians, they're dumb, and they all they care about is fame. Which I hate. I hate that as a representation of them. Although, you know, obviously they do like being famous. And know. they're very good at being famous. And they're very famous. good at being famous. I love all the bits with the Kardashians at the same time. It, give, it does give me, like, a real, like, ooh, look, there they are. So, I yeah, I'm all for it. I think it's really, really entertaining. I think it's clever without being really, really smug. Cheesy when you'd like it to be cheesy fully recommend this show they say everything can be replaced Last episode, I recommended Anna the 2010 Tina Fey Steve Carell film Date Night to watch. Anna, what did you make of it? So, (laughs) Date Night, for all who haven't seen it, is, as Caroline rightly described, a bit of a Tina Fey Steve Carell vehicle. Mm. They have a date night every week and it's starting to get a bit stale. And then there's an evening where their babysitter comes and they're both a bit tired and they can't really be bothered to go out. But Tina Fey is like dressed up all nice. And then Steve Carell like hasn't and she's like, oh, we don't even have to go. he's like no no no. do you know what i'm gonna put on a suit and i'm taking you into the city and she's like oh no you don't have to and he's like no no i'm gonna do it so they're like we are going to have a nice fucking meal in new york city and they go and they go to like a really really posh restaurant and there's no tables then when the triple horns are called to their table and don't seem to be coming they take the table therein their night of hell begins with this sort of minor act of identity board my wife and I are on a date. We were hoping to get here earlier, actually get a table. You didn't quite make it, did you? We'll be standing over there. Okay, I've already forgotten about you. All right. Triple horn, party of two. Maybe we should go someplace else. I want tonight to be different. Triple horn. Us. What are you doing? We are the triple horns. Great. Excuse me, Mr. and Mrs. Triple Horn. Get up. Now. Honey, get up. Now. <laughs> Did you really think you could steal from Joe Mileto? This is just a big misunderstanding. We are Phil and Claire Foster. Thank God! No, 
we turned it sideways. Kill shot! It then becomes like this crazy, slapsticky, farcical film. Yeah. Uh, where it was like a kind of gently funny film. It becomes this like overblown physical comedy, car chases, crashes ridiculousness comedy um, which I'm generally quite up for so I found it very watchable it's insane it's like so weird but also like has an amazing cast I know so once it pivots into being a kind of slapstick action movie kind of if you think like Melissa McCarthy stuff but before yeah. Melissa McCarthy was really doing yeah. it that's the kind of vague genre it has like Mark Wahlberg and James Franco Mark Ruffalo Mila Kunis it's just yeah what a crazy good supporting cast for this like ridiculous ridiculous comedy thing yeah because i do feel like if you think back to 2010 like steve carell was moderately famous because of the u.s office and the daily show tina fey because of snl and 30 rock but yeah. neither of them were movie famous and i feel like this was a studio trying to see if they could sell a movie mm. which i think given that they've both gone on to star in multiple movies since the answer is yes was mark ruffalo not more famous back then and, and yeah mark i think Wahlberg so and like yeah they're, they're, they're all such big names and i'm like james franco definitely was yeah yeah james franco they're Anyway, so James Franklin and Mila Kunis play the triple horns and they're like really funny in it because they are, are really threatening but then they keep breaking off to like have couples arguments which I really enjoyed. Mark Wahlberg is really funny as a topless rich crush that Tina Fey's had over the years with one of her clients. He's just never wearing a shirt He's at never any wearing point. a shirt at any point and it really stresses Steve Carell out and Mark Ruffalo and Kristen Wiig are like barely in it but they're there at the mm. beginning as friends of the couple. I found this film utterly ridiculous in short but there were moments that I really found funny. The funniest bits for me were probably the bits where Tina Fey was slobbering all over Mark Wahlberg and the girl that he's got upstairs comes down and like, are you here to have sex with us? And they're like, haha, no, no. And she's like, good, because you're really ugly. Um, my other favourite bit in this film was when they go back to the restaurant where they stole the reservation because mm. they've left something behind or they want to check something. I think they're trying to find the address of the real Triple Horns. Possibly. That's it. They, yeah. pretend, they pretend that they were with Will I Am and Will I Am left his phone on the table and they come in and they like try to make themselves look really edgy. Steve Carell puts his blazer on backwards and like at an angle <laughs> and they just like just change their clothes in a really like ridiculous hysterical way. They're really good at that kind of stuff and they're good at the like sheer desperation with which they argue with one another as well. I think part of the reason I I think part of the reason I sort of like this movie almost an improbable amount given how fundamentally lightweight it is is because on a slightly more meta level Tina Fey and Steve Carell play the character of normals in a movie star yeah, world yeah that's true a lot of the humor is predicated on the fact that they're like basically not hot enough to be in this film yeah or like not street wise enough yeah or action skilled enough or anything i guess i identify with that i really like it what did you think of their relationship did you buy that they're a couple i think so i think you could buy it one of the like arcs in this if there's like a deep arc in this it's the idea that their married life is boring and therefore maybe they should break up because mm. one of their friends have breaking up because their, their routine is so mind-numbing. And what I did buy about the two of them is that they would prefer a boring life to an exciting one. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not actually true of Tina Fey and Steve Carell because they've both got pretty exciting Hollywood lives. But they're very good at playing people who are normal and are happy with their normal lot in life. And that's one of the things that's so brilliant about Steve Carell's office performances yeah. because you just believe his ordinariness so deeply and when he is happy about small ordinary things in his life you so so buy it so that was the thing that was convincing for me was that they, at the end they're a bit like 
shall we just go back to our boring normal lives and we actually find it really special and nice <laughs> yeah and that i think that's a nice ending for a film yeah, yeah. for a change not like everything must change we are different now or but... like we discovered that the most important mm. thing was you know it was just like actually let's just jack this in now go home <laughs> yeah it's a i mean it's an absolutely insane film and i would recommend it if you would like to not think for an hour and a half i think that's why i like it <laughs> i don't like thinking so next week for you a similarly light film i have to say though not a similar film in any other way i think you might like the 1993 johnny depp vehicle benny and june which stars mary stuart martiston as june and johnny depp as sam not the titular benny benny is in fact june's brother mm. so yeah benny and june are brother and sister June is suffering from unspecified mental health problems that I think may be problematic now, but see for yourself. And Benny is like her primary carer. And then through a meet-cute, Sam ends up on the scene and starts to help sort of take care, in quote marks, of June. And the story rolls on from there. But it's just a very sweet rom-com. And I really, I I was going through a phase of trying really hard to watch every Johnny Depp film in in existence. I was the biggest Johnny Depp fan as a teenager. Interesting. I did not know that about you. Oh my God. I met him like four times. Wow. Have lots of autographs from him. He was, he's a very sweet man to his fans. I have to say he was very nice to me in that phase of my life, even though I was very intense. And I remember the day I saw this film so vividly. Me and my four friends, we had just watched Sleepy Hollow. We went to town. We bought What's Eating Gilbert Grape and Benny and June, went back to my house and watched both of those. Wow. So it was a three movie day for me and my friends. What's Eating Gilbert Grape? (laughs) Depressing for a room full of 14 year olds. (laughs) Benny and June. It was the big hit. Everyone left being like, my new, my favorite film is Benny and June. And we like watched it like once a month for the next like three years. (laughs) I really like it, but I acknowledge that it's not the masterpiece that I thought it was when I first watched it but I'll be really interested to see your thoughts on it Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Seriously. All you have to do is search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcasting app you use. While you're there, it would be really great if you could leave us an iTunes review as it helps other people find the show. We also rely on you listeners for your recommendations. So if you want to tell us what you thought about something or if you've got something we should watch, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, via email. All the details are on seriouslypodcast.com. If you like, you can also recommend us to your friends, family, neighbours, strangers. Let them know that you like the podcast and they should be listening to it too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.